with me, please? Today's a, uh, an incredibly special day. Andrea came up and said, God wants to set someone free, and I already knew that in my heart. And I believe today that God has put every person that's listening on the radio and every person in this room here for a divine appointment. And there are people here t- today who need to be free. And if any time during this message, we do a decision time at the end, but any time during this message, you just feel like you need to come to the altar, I want you to know you have freedom to do that today. We'll have someone come and pray with you if you desire that. But today's about freedom. Today's about God setting folks free. And God, I want to thank you for the incredible privilege that is ours to be in this room today. Thank you for the worship, for the uh, wonderful song that, that Dave sang for us about the fact we're redeemed. So many of us bear um, shame and brokenness and unworthiness. It's where we live. And our past haunts us. But we are not the people we used to be. Thank you, God, that you made a promise that if any person would be in Christ, they could be a new creation. That old things would be put in the past. And everything, all things would become new. Thank you that promise is true. Thank you it's true in Addison's life. It's true in our lives. So, um... We need to ask, Father, for your angelic host to guard this building today and uh, keep us away, keep the evil one and his demons away. Um, Holy Spirit, I want to make sure you know that you have freedom in this room to work and to do. I want to pray, Father, that this will be a safe place today for the souls of men, women, and children. And that you would do a sweet, great work in our lives. You're great, God. And we just need to say today that we love you a whole lot. And Jesus, I pray this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, we certainly are glad that you are here today. Thank you for coming. It is a very special day um, at Dorisville with Operation Christmas Child. And, and I'll, I'll just pause and not, not take it out of context of the spirit that's moving here. This is an opportunity to make a difference in some person's life that you will never meet. You can help set a person free. And this is something you need to be a part of. I just, my wife did a great job on what we preach her message, but you need to be a part of this. You know, for about $15, not only is a child going to receive some wonderful gifts from you, but they have the opportunity to receive the greatest gift, which is Jesus Christ. Um, that's three $5 meals from McDonald's. And if you can't afford the shipping, $7, that's okay. We'll take care of that. Franklin Graham will take care of that. But every person, every person needs to be involved with Operation Christmas Child because it sets men and women free. And that's what God wants to do today. I've got a picture of a fella I want to show you. His name was Leslie McDonald. There's Leslie. David looked at that. David Hills looked at that and went, oh, my gosh. (laughs) Well, he's a real person. He was and is. Um, he was a Cobden icon that I got to meet while I was at Cobden. In fact, I had the privilege of leading him to the Lord. He lived in a shelter care home and had most of his life, uh, again, just mainly because of circumstances. Um, he was quite whole and complete, but just because of circumstances. And Les's claim to fame was he would walk the streets of Cobden with a sickle. He made extra money by cutting grass with a sickle. It's not the kind of guy you would want to meet on Halloween night, probably. <laughs> probably scare you to death. Uh, but he was such a wonderful man. He really was. And like I said, I had the privilege of leading him to the Lord, and I had the privilege of baptizing him. And uh, in 2009, when he passed away, I had the privilege of doing his service. He was just a wonderful guy. He really was. And he would come by the office, and he would stop by, and you invariably, probably on a Monday morning, and actually several days a week, and he would walk in, and he'd say something like, Hey, you got an old cold cup of coffee. He loved coffee. He didn't care if it was white or black or hot or cold. He loved his coffee. He said, you got a cup of old cold coffee. I said, well, Les, I don't have any cold coffee, but I got hot coffee today. 
And then he'd invariably on Monday would say these words. He'd say, well, it's Old Blue Monday. And I'd say, yeah, Les, it's Old Blue Monday, it is. And that was kind of his trademark. That's where he was. Although I have to tell you, he was not a blue person. He really was, he's just an encouragement. He really was. But you know, all of us live on that old blue Monday. If you know anything about pastors, um, it's been said, and I can verify it's true, that a lot more pastors resign on Monday than any other day of the week. And uh, we come in the office, and I tell the folks heads up, you know, it's Monday, just remember that, um, it's Monday. And that doesn't matter if it's a good day or a bad day on Sunday, it has nothing to do with that at all. It's just Monday after Sunday's always a day that you're pretty tired. And so we all have Mondays, old blue Mondays sometimes in our life. But what happens when those old blue Mondays stretch into Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays and Sundays? What is it, how does it work out where every day is a very difficult day? And a lot of people live there. I think all of us to some degree, even the most positive person has those days when well, it's just difficult. I wrote down some, some D words. Let me read them to you. Things like disappointment. What happens when something happens in your life that's just so disappointing? You, you, thought, you thought perhaps an, a promotion would come. You, you thought marriage would be so different. You planned on five kids and God, for whatever reason, gave you none. What happens when, when you're disappointed like that? What happens when life becomes discouragement? That when you do your best and it just doesn't seem to be enough. You do the best on the job and instead of receiving praise, you receive criticism. You, you go to school and, 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 and you go and, and, and you come home and say, Hey, Dad, I got a B. And, and they say, Why didn't you get an A? It's discouraging things like that. How about, how about disenchantment? You become disenchanted. You thought marriage was going to be so glorious and truth is, it's been anything but glorious. Your Prince Charming turned out to be a toad. Sometimes it works like that. Sometimes we become disenchanted with God. Did you hear that in Allison's testimony? Sometimes you become disenchanted because when you started believing in God and you started believing in Jesus, you kind of thought things would go one way. And it seems like since you trusted God and Jesus, things went the other way and we become disenchanted. What about depression? It's a hard topic. I know there's, I'm not an expert at depression, but, you know, I know there's chemical. When it happens in our head, there's something wrong. They have medicine for that. It really helps a lot. But sometimes that things get so difficult in our lives, we just go into this dark valley. And it seems like um, there's sometimes no coming out. I remember back in the Cobden days, 90-something, I don't know what. Gene can tell you the story. I find myself sleeping until 9 o'clock every morning. And believe me, I get up at 5. And, and finally she said something like, Dwayne, I think you're depressed. And I think you're right. And I have no idea, don't know what started at Britain. Can't tell you what ended it. But it was a season of my life of darkness. And, and the thing about disappointment, discouragement, disenchantment, depression, is sometimes can be a cemetery. It can be a place of death. I'm not talking physical death, but see if you can identify with this. It can be a place where dreams die. It can be a place where dreams die. Again, it, it could involve your family and what you envisioned and that dream, that idyllic dream that you had, and it dies. And you, you chose a career and you thought after all the training that you would just love it, and it died. Sometimes dreams die there. And what do you do when your dreams die? It's a very difficult thing. So we all have those old blue monies, and we all deal with times of disappointment and discouragement and disenchantment and depression, and sometimes things die in our dreams. We, we wake up and we find ourselves 60, 70, or 80 years old, and we realize it's over and it didn't turn out like you wanted. It's difficult. It's hard. There's a guy, and a guy named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He's one of the dead people that, that preachers like to talk about. He was a British pastor, uh, teacher, preacher, and was just wildly successful. People today still read his sermons and go, oh my goodness. God used him in a 
powerful way. Now, we're not talking hundreds. We're talking thousands of people. Before there were mega churches, thousands of people would show up to hear Charles Haddon Spurgeon preach. And people were just saved in huge numbers. But you know what? He wrestled with discouragement and depression. In fact, it is reported that one in three Sundays, he couldn't even get out of bed. He couldn't even get out of bed. Some physical health, mostly discouragement and depression. How about that? And that's encouraging to people like me and maybe people like you that, hey, you know, even great men that we value in history for being great preachers sometimes struggle with discouragement and depression. I, I want to read something he wrote, and I, I apologize. He lived in the 1800s. I think he died like 1890. And so it's written very much in Old English, kind of, you know, kind of like one of the older translations. So I'll try to, I didn't feel, I didn't have the liberty to change his words um, on the sheet, but I'll try to, in case it doesn't come across, I'll try to simplify it and, and bring it up to date a little bit. Here's what he wrote. Listen, famous preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Knowing by most painful experience what deep depression of spirit means. In other words, I personally experienced, he would say, deep depression. Being visited therewith at seasons by no means few and far between. So he says, this happened to me not every once in a while, but very often. I thought it might be conciliatory, might help, to some of my brethren if I gave my thoughts about this. That younger men might not fancy that some strange thing has happened to them when they become, became for a season possessed by melancholy. He said, I'm hoping that some young pastor or some young person might read these words and see my life and understand that when that season of melancholy came, don't think it was a strange thing that happened to you. And, he says, that sadder men, men who wrestle more and deeply with depression, that sadder men might know that one upon whom the sun has shone right joyously did not always walk in the light. In other words, he's burying his soul and saying, yes, I know that I'm well known for being a preacher and teacher of the word and God is using me, but I want you to understand that the sun doesn't always shine in my life. And I don't mind telling you the sun don't always shine in my life. I'm glad there are stories like with Addison, people willing to share their story. I'm glad there's a guy named Spurgeon who was willing to be honest and transparent enough to share his story. And I'm glad there's a guy named Elijah who would also share his. And that's where we want to go this morning. If you want to take your Bibles, if you're not already there, and go to 1 Kings chapter 19. This is a story that whenever I talk about the darkness that sometimes invades our life, there's really only just a couple of key scriptures, and this is one of them. So whenever the topic of discouragement comes up, this is a great place to go and see what happens. Now, I need to be careful because we really need to get through the entire message, and I do not want to keep you past time today. So let me just kind of set up the stage very briefly. Elijah was a prophet of God and greatly used by God. He, he did some incredible, God used some incredible miracles through him. And Judah, part of the nation of Israel, but Judah, the tribe of Judah, was just walking in apostasy. They had walked away from God. Their leaders were Ahab and Jezebel, and they were the most carnal people that you could ever imagine. And so Elijah, under the leadership of God, sought to bring revival to the nation. Don't we need that today? Amen? They tried to bring revival to the nation. And so he basically went to, to Ahab and said, Okay, gather up all the prophets of Baal, the false god that you have, bring them, and we're going to have a little contest. And they had this contest. And the 450 prophets of Baal, the, the, the deal was whatever God answered was the winner. And so the 450 prophets of Baal got up and cut themselves and hollered and screamed and pleaded with Baal, and Baal didn't show up. 
Surprise, surprise, surprise. And then Elijah, with really just a few simple words, takes his animal and slays it and puts it on the altar and dumps water all over it. And I mean, fire falls from heaven, consumes the altar, licks up the water and consumes the sacrifice. And so immediately the people just go, hoo, hoo, hoo. you know, we need to follow God. And so they started following God. And the bottom line is Elijah just thought this was it. Revival was breaking out and he had the opportunity to be the leader. He assumed that the leadership would follow. He told Ahab, go eat a ceremonial meal. You know, get ready for revival. He said, you better get down because there's been a drought for three years and it's over now. And then he, after Ahab leads, goes down to Jezreel where the winter palace was. He goes down. He, Ahab on a horse or donkey and Elijah by foot. And his purpose of going there was, was to coach Ahab. This is how you keep revival going. The problem was Ahab didn't get revived. He just got scared. And the other problem was he had a wife whose name was Jezebel. And so when Elijah gets there to Jezreel, he's expecting the opportunity to meet with the king and continue to coach him and lead him in revival. Instead, a messenger comes. And that's where we pick up our scripture. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1, the Bible said Ahab, and again, he's a bad dude, told Jezebel, and that's his wife, and she's a bad girl. Now, let me say this. Is there anyone in the room today that's ever named your daughter Bathsheba? I mean, have you ever gone to high school and a girl walked up and said, Hello, my name is Bathsheba. You know, there's a reason for that. Well, let me tell you, there's a reason why if you search our church roles, you don't find one Jezebel Taylor. Jezebel was a really evil woman. That's why you don't name your daughter Jezebel, because she's a really evil person. So Ahab goes and tells this evil woman, and she really wore the pants in the family, by the way, and ruled the kingdom, really, all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Well, Jezebel was all into this Baal thing, and that really fired her up. So the Bible says, then Jezebel sent a message messenger to Elijah. Has a Jezebel ever sent you a messenger? Has, has, have you been cruising along and life was going pretty stinking good and all of a sudden a messenger shows up? Did you know? Have you heard? You're done. You're not done. She's not done. Yeah. Yeah, messengers come. Messengers come. And, and that's what happens here. A messenger shows up, not one saying, Elijah, we're so glad that you brought revival to the land. This is going to be great. No, here's what Jezebel's messenger says. So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of those of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. So her messenger, the message that she brings to Elijah is, just like you executed those prophets, uh, my prophets today, the Baal prophets, let the gods do more to me if you're not the same way as in dead by tomorrow. Now, if Jezebel really wanted to kill Elijah, that would not be a problem. Because if you read First and Second Kings, she is really good at killing people. Many, in fact, later on, Elijah's going to say, yeah, but all the prophets have been killed but me. At whose hand, Jezebel? So I don't think this is about, I'm going to kill you, Elijah. It's something with a bit, little bit different twist. It's a threat with an intent. Right now, Elijah, as a prophet, is a threat that revival truly might come to the nation. And she sends a trigger to Elijah. And the purpose of the death threat was to trigger in his life. Right now, he's on the mountaintop. Woohoo! Mountaintop. God is good. Yay, God. Victory in Jesus. And she sends a message that's meant to trigger disappointment, discouragement, disenchantment, depression, and death of dreams. 
again, has you ever had a trigger in your life? You're going along and, and all of a sudden a trigger comes. And all of a sudden you find yourself staring at one of these things. Even though you're one of those people who are just wired, the glass is always half full. But a trigger comes. It's a death threat. And the reason I think is this. A prophet on the run is better than a prophet who is dead. A prophet on the run, to her, is better than a prophet who is dead. You know, if she kills Elijah, that's just one more prophet, and people go, yeah, that's what she does. But what if she can get this man of God who just very publicly demonstrated the power of God, what if she can get him on the run, running like a scalded dog? What would that do to the kingdom work? If she kills him, he's a martyr. If he runs, he's a coward. And when strong men of God run from God in fear, what kind of God is that? And see, as long as Elijah was running, he would never experience what God wanted him to experience. Now, all those things are true. One, Satan will send triggers in your life. I don't care how strong you think you are. I'm Mr. Upbeat. I'm Mrs. Upbeat. Nothing can get me down. You don't understand satanic power. You don't understand satanic power. Don't be surprised if a trigger comes into your life. Understand that a believer on the run for Satan's work, a believer on the run is more valuable than a believer who's dead. When a believer in Jesus Christ chooses to run, what does that do for the kingdom? What does that say to a culture around us? What what does it say to the culture that so desperately needs Jesus when Christians are afraid to speak up and stand for the gospel? And as long as we're running, we'll never experience what God wants us to experience. We don't know why. I don't know why sometimes I run. You may not know why you run. I don't think it's important. What triggered, what, what so motivated Elijah to run away? The bottom line is, he did. And he ran a long way. He, the Bible says, and he went to Beersheba. He went to Beersheba. Now, let me kind of paint this picture for you. Up here is Jezreel, and down here is Beersheba. It's 112 miles. It's the distance from here to Hopkins, Hopkinsville, Kentucky. He's not driving a car. He may have had a donkey. But either on donkey back or with his feet, he starts running and ends up 112 miles away. And that's as far as you can go before you enter the desert. So he is on the run. He's 112 miles away from Jezebel. But here's what I want you to get. He's also 112 miles away from where God wants him to be. And when the trigger comes and the disappointment and the the disenchantment and the depression and the death of dreams comes, it will drive us further and further and further away from where the real action is. So he finds himself 112 miles away from Jezebel, but also 112 miles away from where God called him to be. So then the Bible says... He says, Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, he left his servant there. So now he's going to go alone. He's he's going to go, the Bible says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. Now, a day's journey was about 15 miles. So now he's about 135 miles, 132 miles from Jezebel. Now he's gone on a different route. He's gone here to Clarksville, and he's running. He's gone from here to Clarksville, Tennessee. That's how far he's run. And now he's in the desert because the Bible says, and it makes it clear for us, he went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. He's in the desert. He's away from the action He's, he's 136 miles, 35 miles from where God wanted him to be. 
and he's that far also from the enemy. That's the payoff. That's the pay. Not only is he away from Jezebel, but he's away from where God wanted him to be. He's in the desert sitting under not even a good tree. A broom tree would grow to 12 feet tall, but it's so sparse it provided very little shade. Can I be honest? A lot of us have been there, and some of you are sitting there. You're in the wilderness, and you're under a broom tree. You're discouraged. You're disenchanted. You may be battling some emotional depression of your circumstances. Life has not turned out like you thought. You expected one thing, and it seems like God dealt you another, just like Addison said in her testimony. And you look around, and you're by yourself, and you're in this dry desert place, sitting under some tree that provides little shade. And that's when you have the conversation with God. And here's how the conversation goes. And he prayed that he might die. That's pretty dark. He prayed that he might die. Anything was better than this. God seemed pretty distant to Elijah about right now. And Jezebel wasn't far enough. And so he goes, I want to die. It's funny because Jezebel could have helped him out with that. Suicide was an option, but it wasn't. If Jezebel killed the prophet, it would dishonor God. If Elijah took his own life, that would dishonor God. So he turns to the only other source. He says to God, he says, I want to die. That's how dark it was. Now some, too many people don't understand that kind of darkness. That's where he was. And so he says in verse number four, the last part, it is enough. In other words, let me put it to you real simple. I quit. I am D-O-N-E, stick a fork in me, I'm done. I quit. He's telling God this. You ever told God that? I said, did you mention that in your testimony? I, if your plan involves suffering, I'm done. And if you can't do a simple thing like heal my grandmother, I'm done. If you can't heal my marriage and do a simple thing like that, I'm done. How many times have we said that to God? God, I'm done. It's done. He says, Lord, take my life. For I'm no better than my father's. Now, that could have two meanings. One, I'm as good as dead. I can't run far enough that Jezebel's not going to find me. And she's going to kill me. What a crazy lack of trust in God for a guy who just saw four and fifty prophets of Baal killed. But sometimes that's where you end up. That's where you get. You know, I'm not even better than my father's. He probably also meant I failed. I mean, again, in his vision, in his mind, his vision in his mind was that Revival's going to come. God's going to use me. And when the mountain thing happened, he just knew that was it. He ran to encourage the king. The king's already talked to Jezebel, and it went south. And just like every other prophet failed, guess what, God? Listen carefully. I'm just one more failure. And someone in this room and someone on that radio channel That's how you see yourself. I'm just one more failure. In case we don't make it for me to say it later, I'll say it now. No, you're not. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have come to terms with faith in Jesus, if you have been redeemed, can someone say amen? If you have been redeemed, if you have been blood-bought, 
If your father is the creator of the universe and your big brother is his son, Jesus Christ, you are not a failure. Yeah, come on. That's a place. That's a place. But that's what the enemy wants us to believe. And that's what Elijah believed. I'm just like every other prophet who failed. And that's all I'll ever be as a failure. Really, it's, it's, this is where I love this part of the story because light starts creeping in. It's dark. I want to die. Kill me, God. And then light creeps in. Verse 5. Then as he lay and slept. Oh, I've heard it said one of the most spiritual things we can do sometimes is take a nap. You know, at this point, Elijah is exhausted. He's disillusioned. His perspective is blown out of the water about what God is trying to do. He's totally messed up. So I'm trying. He is really broken. He takes a nap. Good advice. That's why God gave us the Sabbath. Take a nap. So he's asleep under this broom tree. And suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. I like this. Now, in America, we've got to be careful of angel mania. We start worshiping angels and talk about this with angels and that with angels. But the bottom line is, God's got a host of angels. And the good ones are on our side. <laughs> and I don't know if we all have an angel assigned or not. I'm just telling you, God's got angels and sometimes they make visitations. <laughs> so what happens here. An angel shows up to the discouraged prophet in the middle of the desert with no one else around and says, Arise and eat. Touched him. Arise and eat. Listen to this. Listen to Psalm 37. I like this. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear God and he, they rescue them. I like that. The angel of the Lord encamps around about us. I wasn't afraid to pray that. Send your angels and guard this building today so the Holy Spirit can do the work that he needs to do. Rescues. And the last part of verse, uh, first part of verse 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Isn't it ironic? And that's why it's such a good scripture. Isn't it ironic that the angel touched him, the angel showed up, and then said, Arise and eat. The greatest needs in Elijah's life, besides spiritual, was physical. I want you to get up and I want you to eat because you're exhausted and you're tired and you're discouraged. So he looked, verse 6, the, then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. And so he ate and drank and took nap number two, man of my own heart. Now, do you see what's missing there? Someone needs to hear this today. You know what's missing? I'll tell you what's missing. What are you doing laying here? You're nothing but a failure. You don't hear a sermon from God. You don't hear a rebuke from God. What you hear is a love note in the form of bread and water and said, arise and eat. I wish we could destroy the imagery of God being angry at his children. There will be a time for the wrath of God at the great white throne judgment of those who reject Jesus Christ. But he's a good, good father. Amen. That's who he is. But it's been drilled in our heads by folks who don't understand the gospel that our God, if we mess up, God can't wait to throw a lightning bolt and hurt his children. Hog wash. Hog wash. And we wonder why people don't want to get saved. Well, he took his second nap, verse 7. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. Must have been a Baptist. Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. And by the way, the journey he is on, it's going to a good place, but it's not authorized by God. He's going to the mountain of God. But God didn't send him there. 
He's on his own journey. I think it's cool that God still provided for the journey. It's kind of interesting. Well, he rose, verse 8, and ate and drank. And then he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights. And we could talk about that, but we really don't have time. As far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, this is so cool. Now, understand, Elijah knows where he's going. And he's not going to a mountain. He's going to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is an ancient name for Sinai. He's going to Mount Sinai. Now, just a little bit of biblical background. Mount Sinai is where God called Moses up to, from the children of Israel. Once they were out, outside of Egypt, calls Moses up and spends, I think, 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain, giving him the law. That's powerful. I want you to, I want you to know something. Just like it was intentional that Elijah ended up at Mount Sinai, I think you're here today intentionally. I really do. Andrew is right. God wants to set people free. And he's arranged. You're saying, why am I here today? You are here today because God cared enough to either get you a ride, clear your calendar, or put it in your heart. And you're here to encounter God. So... So the Bible says that, that Elijah went on this journey 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now he's walked, and additionally, now he's walking from Harrisburg to Chattanooga. It's 200 more miles. He has walked or donkey rode over 300 miles to get where he is. That's a long way. A long way from the action and a long way from Jezebel. And there he went into a cave. This is one of those things that people smarter than me love to mess with. But they, they make a big deal, and, it's, and it's, good, it's a good big deal. It's a good big deal. In English, they've chosen to translate most times, he went into a cave. But in the Hebrew, the article is definitive. So it should be, and he went into the cave. Not just any cave, the cave. Now, if you remember the story of Moses, the Bible says, Moses said, you know, let me see you, and and he couldn't do that. So God hid him in the cleft of the rock and watched as he watched his backside as the glory passed by. There's a whole bunch of people smarter than me and you that believe not only was he on Mount Sinai, he was in the very cave that God put Moses as his glory passed by. How big is that? How incredible. I mean, it's probably not provable, but it sure is ironic that the Hebrew used that definitive article. How interesting is that? Well, he spent the night in the place, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And here's what he said. What are you doing here, Elijah? The emphasis seems to be on the word here. Why are you here, Elijah? He, he could be saying, he could be saying, why are you not where I sent you? You're 335 miles away from where I put you. Why are you here? Or could, perhaps he could be saying, you know, why are you here before me? <laughs> On my holy mountain in this cave, why are you here before me? That's a really good question. There are two options. He's there for encouragement or resignation. He's there to get fired up, to keep on going, or he's there to quit. Now, we already know. He's already told God, kill me. I am done. So Elijah comes to the mountain of God and perhaps to the very cave where Moses was for the sole purpose of quitting. I've had enough. I've had enough. I've gone to Ever been there? Isn't it amazing you can be in the most holy place and be ready to resign? See, church attendance is no indicator of a healthy heart. Sometimes I wonder why we understand why there's so much trouble in church because 
There's people a long way from God even though they're in church. Huh. So there he is, ready to quit. So what do you do with that? Well, you can come back tonight and hear another part of this. But what about this morning? What do you do with this? Well, in Psalm 23, 4, and of course, that's the great shepherd's psalm. It says this. Yea, it's kind of King Jamish. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Yea, though I have disappointment, discouragement, disenchantment, depression, or even my dreams dying. Sounds like the shadow of death to me. Even though I walk through these valleys of disappointment and depression and disenchantment and discouragement, and even though I've watched my dreams die, my marriage My family suffer. My career. Even though I've seen those die. You know what the psalmist says? I will not fear. The psalmist says, even though I'm in that valley of the shadow of death, of, of disappointment, discouragement, disenchantment, depression, or the place where dreams die, I will not fear. Fear, And the answer is because you are with me. Now, as long as we live in this broken world, as long as we live in this sinful world as believers, now I'm speaking as believers, there will be disappointment. There will be discouragement. There will be disenchantment. There will be depression. And there'll be death of dreams. That's going to happen in this world. But here's what we've got to understand as Christ followers. That if that is true, He is still with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And as Addison told us today, that's, even knowing that, that's hard. But you need to understand something, that God won't let you go. In fact, he says, he says, thou art with me, because thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now, it's easy to think of the rod as something that you beat people. I told Frank, Frank carries a, a rod. And I told Frank, I said, Frank, if, if Dave Valentine nods off today, hit him. That's what we think about rods. Oh, that's encouraging. Thank you, Dwayne. So God's got this rod, and he's going to whoop me with it. You missed it. The rod is used by the shepherd to protect the sheep. It's not for use on the sheep. It's for use to protect the sheep. And the psalmist could say, you're with me, and I won't fear evil, because my protector is here. Dear children of God, your protector is here. Now, that wasn't good enough. Dear children of God, your protector is here. Now, let me tell you what's going to happen. When your boss walks in, he's a total jerk tomorrow. Hopefully it won't be me. But if your boss is a total jerk, your protector is there. If you go to the doctor tomorrow and he says, I've got some really bad news, your protector is there. I want you to get a hold of that. And then he says, no, you have the rod, but you've got the staff. And the staff, again, was the purpose of keeping the sheep nearby. You know, again, being compared to sheep is not very complimentary, but boy, it's great. Because sheep are incredibly stupid. But the shepherd loves the sheep so much that when they start to wander away, he'll gently, not, not harshly, gently take that, that staff and reach over and pull the sheep back over here. So you've got a God. You have a God 
who will not leave you nor forsake you, who will protect you and will guide you. It still hurts when you get discouraged. It still is difficult when you're disenchanted. When you're in the throes of some sort of depression, it is overwhelming. And if you've watched, you're now 70 years old and you realize your dream has just died. When you're there, he's there with you. And he is there to protect you. And he's there to guide you. Paul put it this way, and this is our closing part. What then shall we say to these things in Romans chapter 8, verse 31? What shall we say to? Not, notice he didn't say, what shall we say about these things? He didn't say that. He, we speak to these things. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to disappointment? What shall we say to discouragement? What shall we say to disenchantment? What shall we say to, press, to depression? What shall we say to the death of dreams. If God is for us, who can be against us? Yeah. I mean, yeah. What do we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He gives us more. Listen to this, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, don't take that to the extreme and say, oh, I've been wanting a new car. Within the realm of his will. And here's the deal. When you're discouraged and disenchanted, don't you forget this. If you ever think, if you think, God, quit loving me. God, you really don't care. If you cared, you just remember this. And the real deal was stained with blood. Blood pulled at the foot. He was beaten and stripped naked and a crown of thorn crest down upon his head. And this thing forever shouts that God loves us. And all the forces of evil and all the forces of hell can never change that fact. Nor can all your failures. Nor can all your failures. Hey, Elijah, if God's for you, who can be against you? And he had to look forward for this because he lived in the Old Testament days. Elijah, if God spared not his own son, wow. He's for you, dude. It gets even better. Verse 33. Who who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Well, Satan will. Your friends will. Well, if you just do this, and if you hadn't done that. Thank you for all the encouragement. I appreciate it. And you will bring a report against yourself. We are so often our own worst enemies. So, so who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It won't be God. It is God who justifies. The one who could bring a charge against his own children will not bring a charge against his own children. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. The one who could say, you're a failure, you always will be, he's busy. And you know what he's busy doing, Brent? He's at the throne making intercession for us. (laughs) He's in heaven. Not speaking condemnation, but speaking on our behalf. Now, folks, it just don't get any better than that. Now, it's hard. Oh, it's hard. This depression and discouragement, this disenchantment thing, I know. But if I want, you to, I want you to leave here today just knowing this. I struggle with you. All of, I think to some degree all of us do. But I want you to leave with this. That God never gave up on Elijah. 
And God will not give up on you. He loves you. He loves you. And today, if, if you don't have that kind of a warrior on your behalf, it's all about Jesus and the cross. It's not about going to church. It's not about being a saint and being good. It's about recognizing that you're a sinner and that Jesus died for you on a cross like that. And believing that he paid the price for your sin, turn away from that sin and following Jesus. I know that's simplistic. That's really what it is. So for our time of decision this morning, I want to give you an opportunity that we don't normally do. Um, first off, if you want to know more about Jesus, we don't give you a chance to come. And I know I'm, I'm asking you to step out of your comfort zone. Get ready. But if you're here today and you find yourself, Dwayne, I'm, I'm disappointed right now. Dwayne, I'm, I'm discouraged right now. Dwayne, I, I'm disenchanted right now. I may even be in a state of depression. And Dwayne, I'm in that valley of shadow of death and my dreams have just died. I just realized I'm never going to have the marriage I thought I was going to have. You realize today, students, that your mom and dad will never be the mom and dad you thought they would be. You realize that career-wise, you'll never obtain your life dream. And I'm in a place where dreams die. I'm going I'm to ask you to stand... Well, I shall ask you to come forward in, in the invitation. I'll tell you when. And for one purpose, one purpose, that's just for us to pray for you. I want to have a public prayer for my brothers and sisters and myself who sometimes wrestle that, and frankly, maybe we're there right now. I want to give you that chance. I know it's outside your comfort zone. It's not a sin to be discouraged. It's not a sin to be disenchanted. It's just one of our human gigs. And if you look around, all of us are human. So let's pray. Well, God, you've orchestrated a wonderful day today. And I want to thank you for that. Andrea was right. You want to set people free today. And for some, that's going to be freedom from sin. And if there's someone here today who needs Jesus, today they begin to understand how much you love them and how you want them to have an incredible life free from the power of sin in their lives. We pray for that, God, right now. Father, for our, my brothers and sisters in Christ who might be going through a, a season of discouragement or disappointment or disenchantment, perhaps depression, the death of dreams. Father, we want to pray that you'll help us to be free too. We are, after all, redeemed. We are redeemed. So this time is your time. And Jesus, I pray this in your precious name. Amen. While we stand to our feet.